0: It's called the Radiopotomy app. Find it in your Google Play or Apple App Store from your friends at News Talk 710 KURV. I'll keep your eyes on the road, you on the wheel. This is an encore presentation of the 956 Drive Home on News Talk 710 KURV and KURV.com. Here's Zach. I yield
1: the rest of my time, as they say Ooh. up in Austin, to Mr. Rankin. introduce our next guest
2: thank you very much mr uh mr zach uh the uh topic of of vouchers has been around texas for a long time and pro voucher people at least in my acquaintance are always puzzled why it can't get through the through the legislature a combination of democrats and rural republicans have, have always been opposed to it and it looks it maybe that way this time. Uh, the governor is out campaigning for vouchers or uh, education savings accounts as they're called. Uh, and we've we've called it turns out the guys from the valley docs. Uh, docs Gonzalez is um, what do I call you you're the you're the uh, you you're the guy who lobbies the legislature and I can't.
3: I'm, I'm a, a, a governmental relations at Tasby. Okay, Texas
2: yeah. Association of School Boards. and turns out he's been there a long time and he's from uh, McAllen originally. So what's the read what's the read on the likelihood of of getting vouchers in the legislature?
3: You know, uh, Davis, it's looking a lot like it has in previous sessions. Um, usually, there is a big push coming into session uh, from uh, generally the Senate side on uh, on getting vouchers passed. Um, once that bill starts working its way through the session, once people start looking at the provisions of the bill and what it actually does and what it doesn't do, uh, you start getting folks peeling off, uh, of that support sometimes. Um, but really, and, and you nailed it in the beginning of your, of your intro there. Um, there is a pretty solid block of, of Democrats and rural Republicans that, really don't support uh vouchers and and when we talk about vouchers really what we're talking about it's moving public tax dollars to private entities without any accountability and so i think that's what really gets to some people is that uh, once those dollars are gone there's no way to measure what's happening to them how are the schools doing that are accepting those dollars? What's being done with those uh, with those funds? You know, in Arizona right now, they have a form of vouchers called education savings accounts, um, mm-hmm. and folks are buying uh, snow cone machines and kayaks with their their education ser- savings accounts. So it
1: makes sense to me. Yeah. Hey, right. I mean, if so, I want to learn how to start a RASPA stand, I mean, hey, why not? Right? That would that, be included let me tell you, in yeah, my education.
3: It's, it's business one hundred and one. Yeah. Um, you know, we always we hear the complaints about people buying stakes with with SNAP uh, benefits. Oh, yeah. So, you know, can you imagine buying stakes with your education savings account? <laughs> um, but uh, no, uh, it, it's 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 something that most rural Republicans they also recognize that there isn't a lot of school choice available out in in their areas. So, um, what happens is the overall funding for public education, uh, at least in other states where they've had these passed starts to decline a little bit because there's only one pie of education funding. you got to take the money from somewhere. So if you only have one pie of education funding and you're pulling out a portion for uh, vouchers, education savings accounts, that makes the slice, the rest of the pie, which is still a very big slice, but it makes that slice smaller. So you're basically taking funds that would otherwise go to rural districts to pay for vouchers that really wouldn't benefit people in rural areas that don't have that kind of choice available to them. So...
2: Let me see if I can explain this
3: another our, way. Our,
1: our guest is Dax Gonzalez, director of governmental relations at the Texas Association of School Boards. Our guest on your nine five six drive home. Go ahead, Davey.
2: You've done a good. You've done a good job, but I, I like to read. But I'm thick headed. So uh, you you have one pie or one cake, and if you take out X percent for for private schools, whether they be local Catholic schools, Christian schools, Muslim schools. There's probably a Hindu school somewhere um, in Austin.
3: Oh, I'm sure we have a Wiccan school, Davis. So
2: oh <laughs> well, there you go. That'll kill that deal right there. Um, so that uh, that leaves less money then, and that that money that those guys get would otherwise go to public schools because right now you can't take. There's no mechanism or vehicle for. Parents to get that money. I'm, I'm I'm doing a worse job. I'm screwing this deal up nine <laughs> ways to Sunday. Uh, but the, when you say there's no accountability, I've you mean the state doesn't check uh straight Jesuit or Kincaid School in Houston or Saint Stephen's in Austin to make sure they're spending their money right or? You know, no, they,
3: they they don't. I mean, they're, they're private entities, and and they should be private entities. That's and I think that's where the disconnect is. Is these are private schools. They um they have their own curriculum. They they have their own teaching style. They have their own board. They they report to their parents the way they choose to, but they're not subject to the same open meetings requirements or financial reporting requirements or even state accountability system that measures how schools are doing um, academic wise. Uh, and that's perfectly fine. It's when you start sending public tax dollars to those entities that you start running into issues because as a taxpayer, I want to know where my money's going. And right now I can go to my district and look at the budget, how much I spend on teachers, how much I spend on food supply, you know, all that kind of Mm -hmm. stuff. So I think that's where you get a lot of the opposition from um, really the, uh, you know, I spend a lot of time traveling the state and and rural Texas, you find some of the most rational people out there. (laughs)
1: <laughs> let, me, really, throw out the, let me throw out the question uh, we're speaking with uh, Dax Gonzalez with Texas Association of School Boards on your 956 drive home is this is going to sound silly but it is actually a, a serious question what amount of money do we need to throw at the problem to solve what's ailing the schools right now
3: what's ailing public schools uh, yeah
1: just the school system in general just, yeah. just you know, what I would you say
3: it, it depends where you are you know uh, the valley has shown really great results um with the things that they're doing there um and and their models across the state really for their their progress with kids that are um at risk of dropping out economically disadvantaged kids um, and what we hear is th- there's no magic number i'm sorry i can't say that we're de- depending on what study you look at we're ranked between 40th and 46th in terms of per-people spending across the United States, right? So, but we also have some, one of the largest student populations across the United States, so it's an expensive endeavor. Um, teachers are making, starting out in the 50s, $50,000 a year, um, which is is good, but there's not a lot of room for growth sometimes for those, those uh, educators, and if we want to really treat it like a profession. Um, the first thing you want to do is make sure that they're getting the the increases that they need. So, um, what's the number? Zach? I, I really couldn't tell you. there's there's no real magic number. It, it some schools are doing just fine, and some are are really struggling. Um, you know, I
1: right. i I asked because I think the two biggest things that the state of Texas spends its money on in the budget is one health care at like thirty four percent and then twenty five percent I think goes to uh, education. And uh, there was a, there was a fight over, I think the 1% of the budget that goes to like border security. And I, I don't want this to turn into like a border security debate or whatever, but it's like, yeah, it's yeah. always, it's always, you know, this percentage of money could go, it's for the kids. It's for the kids. This percentage of money could go. It's for the kids. It's for the kids. But for um, this particular conversation with school choice, you mentioned the, the, the accountability factor. If something like this were to be done, what needs to happen for accountability's sake and is is that in this is is that as as far as you're aware is that in this proposal
3: it is not in the bill and i think that's what a lot of school people that i i talked to really want to to see is if you're going to do some kind of school choice initiative where is the accountability we spend i don't know how many hundreds of millions of dollars on measuring what public schools are doing if we're going to give money away and not care about what's happening to it then why are we even spending the money on the on the public school side so um so Let th- me, in the well, bill there isn't really a provision to to measure that. There there are random audits to ensure that parents are using their funds on educational expenses. But like I said, in, in Arizona, even when they find fraud, they're not able to always correct it and get that money back.
1: Davey, I know you had another question, but we well, gotta go and I apologize. Time. He's doing uh, a good Dex, job
3: for
2: the valley, though. He's representing us real well.
3: Oh, let me! You all need to go on, get off of 83 right now, and go grab me a botana because I'm telling you, <laughs> nobody does them around here. And and you're I, kidding I, me. I, I gotta get me one.
1: Yeah, we're gonna uh, bring you. We'll bring you a stack of plates from El Pato. How about that?
3: Okay. Uh, Dex, Gonzalez, Mrs. G,
1: Mrs. Dex, G, Dex Gonzalez. Dex Gonzalez is with uh, Texas Association of School Boards, joining us on News Talk 710 KURV.
0: This is your 956 drive home. You're listening to an encore presentation of the 956 Drive Home on News Talk 710 KURV and KURV.com. Hey, as long as you're scrolling through your phone checking out your friend's latest Instagram post, take a moment to download the Radio Parami app. Take the app with you wherever you are and whatever you're doing. This is an encore presentation of the 956 Drive Home on News Talk 710 KURV and KURV.com. Here's Zach. Uh,
1: We've been talking a lot about schools this week, school vouchers, what schools do with the amount of money that they get in the budget. I think for the state of Texas, I think they're number two in spending. I think 34% goes to health care, and I think about 25% of the Texas budget goes to education. What are they doing with that money? That's a good question, and uh, our guest is going to uh, answer that, break that down for you. Gary Frankel is an MPA candidate in PK-12 Education Administration at Texas A&M University. He's got an article out in the Daily Caller. Public schools don't need more money. They need to spend it more wisely. Uh, that's, a, that, that's an attention grabber right there, and it does its job pretty well. So what say you? How does, how does all this work from your point of view?
4: Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, the problem with a lot of education spending in the United States is that there's very little regulation on how schools are exactly supposed to spend that money. And you see a little bit of this in the, uh, in the Rio Grande Valley, even. Uh, a couple of years back, La Jolla ISD decided to use some of their general fund, which comes directly from the state as opposed to local property taxes, to build a water park. So, instead uh, we don't, we don't of directing uh, that capital <laughs> toward financing happened. their we students' education, they chose to build a water park. And there are a plethora of examples around the country of public schools using money for something other than educating kids.
1: I mean, <laughs> I, I have no way of justifying that. But no, you're absolutely right. We don't know. You would think are, how many strings are attached to, to, to the money that schools get?
4: Not as many as you would think. So schools derive funding from three primary sources, at least in the state of Texas. Um, Around forty percent comes directly from the state government, and this is the broad general fund that just goes into the district's budget, and they can use it more or less for whatever they want. The second part is local property taxes. That's what you're paying on your home or your property, etc and a good portion of that goes towards your local school district as well and that also goes into the general fund without too many strings attached Then the third source and by far the smallest is the federal government and those are generally grants for very specific programs those are your free and reduced lunches Um, those are assistance for disability services and that money does come with numerous strings attached, because it's the all government. If they're giving you the money, they can say whatever they want. But the vast majority of money that goes to public school budgets uh, can be spent for whatever the public school
1: deems fit. It's fascinating because I think we had a conversation uh, a few days ago that that was one of the cases against. Private schools and and school vouchers was that well you know we're going to give them all this money it's from the state taxpayer dollars and you know they don't get any that they, they don't uh, they don't have any strings attached to that they can basically do whatever they want with the money there's no oversight over what they can and can't do with that sort of thing so uh, it's interesting to see the similarities that you're presenting here with in the, in that particular scenario
4: yeah public schools do have some accountability metrics some reporting metrics. Um, that they are required to provide the state. So in that sense, there is a difference between your public and your charter schools and then your private schools. But those restrictions aren't related to the money in and of itself. It's related to the fact that they are schools operated by the government, while private schools are not. Um, but, But education savings accounts, which are being proposed in Texas right now, are any meant to replace the portion of a school's budget that comes from educating a particular student. So the money directly from the state government, anything from the federal government, as well as local property taxes are completely unchanged. So even, so the school isn't receiving that bit of money only because they are no longer educating that student. If the student continues to attend that public school, the public school will receive the money just as they always have. And second, education savings accounts will have some accountability requirements in the sense that parents will be expected to report their purchases to the state to ensure that no kind of fraud is being committed. It's just some basic security measures that have been uh, very successful in states like Arizona that have already implemented education savings
1: accounts. Joining us on 710 KURV, Gary Ann Frankel is an MPA candidate in PK-12 Education Administration at Texas A&M. He's our guest on your 956 drive home. And he's got an article in the Daily Caller titled, Public Schools Don't Need More Money, They Need to Spend It More Wisely. Davis Rankin, your question.
2: The um, It seems to me the um, uh, a counterpoint to yours would be that uh, theoretically the public is agreeing with the way their local school board spends the money because they re-elect them if they were really if if the unhappiness with their spending through their spending was sufficient if it was widespread enough then they'd turn people out and that would explain why they spend the money as they do because the public seems to either endorse it or it doesn't it doesn't bother them enough to vote against them what do you think
4: oh. It's a fair response, but I'm not sure if you scale that kind of argument and take it to its logical end that it really holds up. If you look at the federal government, for example, there are a whole plethora of issues, regardless of what your political ideology is, that you don't really approve of the federal government spending on. Um, Some people think too much money is spent on entitlements or the military or um, particular social programs or... Um, those random spending bits and pieces that Rand Paul brings up every festivus, but yet <laughs> there 's a ninety percent reelection rate among incumbents in Congress. so by that logic, we can never be upset with anything ever because well, we just keep reelecting people, so i 'm not sure how far we can really take that kind of argument.
1: Well, you could. You, you mentioned in the article that mm. schools, on average, spend about—I'm going to round the number up—seventeen thousand per student. That's a lot of money per student. It is. Yeah. Where Where does it all go? How How do you make that number uh, a number that's used efficiently and effectively for for each student in each individualized case?
4: part of the problem is that um and and this is an issue that a couple districts in texas have run into is first of all a lot of school districts are in a whole lot of debt Uh, if you look at plano isd in north texas for instance they spend more every year than the gross domestic product of some small countries to start paying off this debt And because of that, it ends up being a sinkhole for the poor teachers in the classroom who just want a little bit of extra cash so they can decorate their classroom or purchase a bit of extra materials for their kids. It causes a lot of harm. The other problem is that districts are required to contribute to teachers' pensions. And that seems fine on the surface, but the problem is, is that these pension funds have become so bloated that it's now preventing cash from actually getting to the classroom. So in the end, it's operating more like a general state employee program than an institution designed to educate our kids.
2: Now, when, when, you, talk, when you talk about uh, teacher uh, retirement, I, I was just talking to a former teacher the other day, and they haven't had a cost of living increase in their monthly retirement retirement. Um, retirement pay in 18 years. Uh, and every teacher I've ever known talks about in, in retirement, talks about teacher health care, education, health care in Texas just says it's miserable. There's, we have two systems in Texas, as you know, there's one for yes. teachers and I don't know who else. And there's one for everybody else. So I don't, I don't know why you say that they, that they're bloated.
4: Well, that just goes to show how poorly these pension funds have been managed. It's not that teachers are necessarily receiving the benefits from cost of living adjustments, as you said. It's just that the way that these programs are written into law makes them really bloated and difficult to manage and inefficient. So the result is that, one, they're spending a lot of money, and two, the money isn't even being used well.
1: So I'm going to ask you the question that we asked somebody uh, a couple of days ago: is, is there a magic number that can fix the problems that we've got in the schools right now? Uh, money-wise, is there? It, it, can we throw enough money at the problem, even if even if uh, the money isn't being spent as efficiently as it is? The money, the, the schools are always claiming that they need more money. They need more money. Is there a magic number to fix it?
4: You know, that's, uh, that's an argument that a lot of superintendents around the country have made. And I don't think there is a magic number. And even if there was a magic number, it would vary a lot by the district, the county, the state. And so just this, these endless attempts to just increase school funding to some infinite number is unsustainable because at some point you're going to be spending too much on a good
1: thing. Hey Gary, hey, and thanks hey, a lot for oh, go ahead, go ahead. Public
4: policy that way.
1: Yeah. Thanks a lot for spending some time with us today. Uh, check out the article by Gary and Frankel, our guest today, from uh, it's featured on the Daily Caller. Public schools don't need more money. They need to spend it more wisely. Our guest was Gary and Frankel. He is a MPA Candidate and PK-12 Education Administration of Texas A&M, our guest on News Talk 710
0: KURV. You're listening to an encore presentation of the 956 Drive Home on News Talk 710 KURV and KURV.com. And KURV.com. This is an encore presentation of the 956 Drive Home on News Talk 710 KURV and KURV.com. Here's Zach.
1: Joining us right now is Tim Snyder from Matador Economics. We have some economic questions to ask him, but first and foremost, uh, Tim, I, I need your help in breaking a, breaking a tie that we have here between me and Davey we were just having oh, the discussion about work. taxation is theft <laughs> and, and davy doesn't seem to Davy doesn't seem to quite uh get the the full picture of that what What do you think? Well,
6: I think insurance is theft I think inflation <laughs> is theft, and I think taxes to those people who think they're not theft is theft.
2: there you're are crabby <laughs> you two are crabby <laughs> you see, you in
1: see that
6: mode, my friend
1: you see Tim Snyder knows way more about economics than I do and he takes my side that taxation is theft you see well, let's talk, let's talk about the insurance companies <laughs> <Let's talk about, laughs> ah we don't like those yeah, guys no uh, kidding. hey yeah let's uh let's talk real quick about the, the some of the LNG pro, uh, projects around the state of Texas right now Davis had Mentioned something to me about Port Arthur and what's going on over there. What's what's the update? Well,
6: uh, you know, if if we're talking about the Freeport LNG plant that we had that went offline last year after an explosion on in June, um, it's back up uh, running. And you have to understand how they do this. They they call a stream of processing uh, from. Uh, the gas form to the liquid form. They call that a train and that Freeport plant has three trains. They opened two of them earlier in the year, this year and just opened the third one and it should be back up to, to its capacity, but working like crazy to try to catch up for the last eight, nine months of being offline. So um, it is back up and running finally, it took a lot of permit work and you know we had to get FERC to, to bend some rules but that happened and we're back up and producing
1: joining us on 710k urv is tim snyder from matador economics and uh he's giving us a oil and gas update and a, a update on the economy and i don't think mm-hmm. we've asked you your opinion on everything that's been going on with uh, some of the banks now i know uh, I think wow. you had Jerome Powell coming out and saying, "Hey, the banking system 100 percent secure. Well, not 100, percent but you know, for for the most part, on the whole, we're doing fine. I, there's been a couple of guys that have been stumbling and falling that we've uh, had to take action. But uh, other than that, the banking system as as a as a complete picture, it's 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 in a it's in a positive note. Uh, what what has been your opinion of of Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank and all of these big banking snafus that have been going on?
6: Let's let's talk about... First, let's talk about Silicon Valley Bank, and let's just put it out on the table. They spent more time worrying about woke regulations and ESG um, uh, uh, evaluations than they did taking care of the bank's assets. They did not have an active hedging program. There was a, n- a number of things that was working against them that when the federal Reserve in its own monetary its own mono uh directional uh program you know raised interest rates outrageously uh last year we raised interest rates four point now seven five percent four point seven five percent from a quarter of a point at the discount rate to to five percent now um and that was very devastating to the banking system itself. Powell had to say what he said today in his minutes. But if you listen to what the, the release was today, one of the things they talked about is they took out the economy. Is, the inflation is, uh, looks to be abating a little bit. They got out of that. They re- replaced it with uh, inflation is still rampant. And they also said that from a banking standpoint, they did address the banking scenario, um, there were some things that happened. But I'm going to pose a question to you guys. Some of the the most strenuous banking regulations that we've put on banks in the last 50 years is called the Dodd-Frank Law. Okay, Mm -hmm. And these are the set of regulations to, to really punish banks for doing what they did back in 2008. One of the signatories or or, 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 uh, authors to this was a guy by the name of Barney Frank. Barney Frank retired from Congress a number of years ago and was sitting on the board of directors of Signature Bank in New York, a bank that lost a significant portion of its assets because the uh, people weren't going back to work and commercial real estate was just dying on the vine on the East Coast. What does that say? That a former congressman that authored that bill that was supposed to take care of uh, people taking advantage of the situation allowed his bank that they paid him $1.2 million a year to sit on that board. Oh.
2: That that bank went belly up. He had pleaded actually also for, uh, at some point, I don't know when, he had pleaded or or wanted uh less stringent regulations whoever he told us to um, yes he did he may not you know uh, it'd be one thing to be a regulator or it'd be one thing to be a legislator it's another thing i bet to sit in the chair and know you're responsible because mm-hmm. you're not responsible really as a legislator but when you're in the chair and your assets are on the table and and the behavior of all the people in the bank that that's a different thing. I guess his judgment's not as good it, as we thought, or uh, or as he thought. So, exactly. Well, Texas makes supposed so to be pretty you know, good, from what I can, from what we're told.
6: Yeah, it's not a good. It's not a good. It's not a good picture. You know, um, the banking system. I think the banking system is still solid, but I'm going to tell you there are concerns.
1: What you know? concern, well, and, uh, Tim Snyder is an economist at Manador Economics. He's our guest on your 956 drive home. What, what concerns do you have about the banking system?
6: Well, first and foremost, the rate at which the Federal Reserve went after interest rates to try to cool inflation. And they created a bubble that um, made it next to impossible for these banks that were buying uh, treasuries. To secure their their assets on the in the bank, that they got themselves in a bubble as they as the interest rates went up seventy five basis points for six times or how many ever times it went and fifty basis points once or twice and a couple of a couple of twenty five basis point increases, but that happened in such a short period of time that was twelve month period of time that it put a serious crimp uh, in the bank's ability to keep stable. Their assets, and that still exists today. That's the reason why, if you look at First Republic Bank right now, after we had eleven banks uh, that pitched in—I don't remember how many billion dollars, thirty billion dollars—I believe this was—they're um, still struggling with trying to make sure that they can get everything back to back to uh, ground zero. This should have been something that was coordinated with the federal government, and the U.S. Department of Treasury, and Janet Yellen, but it just simply didn't happen because they were pushing a, a rhetoric, a line, that the economy was solid and that um, inflation was going was gonna to cool off, and we weren't having any trouble. And this is what bites you when you do that.
1: Hey, speaking of all that, Janet Yellen was pushing for raising the, the, the debt ceiling again. Uh, are we, do you predict we're going <laughs> to run that game of chicken all over again? I hope we don't.
6: You know, Jody Arrington, I know Jody. Jody is the chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee. He's a U.S. congressman from Lubbock. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm here to tell you, people are going to absolutely implode. if they ra- First of all, if they raise the debt limit, number one, without having some sort of condition that offsets it, because the you're just continuing to raise our debt limit, and and put us in a position to where, you know, thirty years ago the average citizen in the United States, um, his share of the federal debt was thirty seven thousand dollars. Today it's two hundred and forty seven thousand dollars. That's untenable.
2: Well, <laughs> hmm.
1: I thought, I thought David was going to
2: have a nice talking to you. you know? <laughs> <laughs> the Democrats have no incentive to to give up anything, I I don't think, because if the Republicans block it, and Republicans have been complicit, because I I can't remember the last time a prominent Republican said, we got to cut our spending or do something. Exactly. Um, Exactly. So so it's going to go up. uh, There's no way to stop it that I can see, and we can't pass about – what I've heard is we can't pass a balanced budget next time because we'd have to cut like half the half half the budget and it would cause a cause a calamity for good or for bad. Now some people would go, yeah, calamity, that's what we need. We need to clean the pipes out.
1: But, yeah, but uh, the one thing that we can all agree on right now is that absolutely taxation is theft. Thanks a lot, Tim. Appreciate it. Tim Snyder from <laughs> Matador Economics. Check out the, the newsletter, MatadorEconomics.com. MatadorEconomics.com. You're listening to News Talk seven ten K U R V.
0: You're listening to an encore presentation of the 956 Drive Home on News Talk 710 KURV and KURV.com. your day with news and interviews important to you with the valley's morning news weekday morning starting at six sergio sanchez and tim sullivan bring you the latest headlines and hourly discussions with accuweather to get you ready for your day and special guest interviews on topics that affect you and your family good morning good morning, good morning gentlemen. Yeah. good morning guys for well, what's enjoy the show it's what you need to start your day the valley's morning news with sergio sanchez and tim sullivan weekday morning starting at six on news talk 710 KURV. This is an encore presentation of the 956 Drive Home on News Talk 710 KURV and KURV.com. Here's Zach.
1: Davis Rankin, by the way, uh, please do me the honor of introducing our next guest.
2: Our next guest is the Kitchen Wrangler. She's a Valley native. Her name is Melissa Guerra. I'm looking at uh, her website, which is Kitchen Wrangler W-R-A-N-G, just like the pants, KitchenWrangler.com. And I'm not sure exactly how to describe you, Melissa Guerra, except you're a, a food enthusiast, a cook. Uh, I think you used to do catering, didn't you? And you're becoming a bit of an anthropologist about food, which is why we're well. One of the reasons we're talking with you now. So, how are you?
5: Fine. Thank y'all for so much for inviting me. I really appreciate being here.
2: Now I I, I stopped at uh, Luby's and got some capirotada and brought it to work where it'll. Be consumed, but every place I go, capirotava is different. Everybody's got a different version, and it occurred to me that I only see this at at Lent season. Lenten season, and um,
5: that's correct. Yeah, this is one of the reasons that I love the food in the valley. I mean, I was born and raised here, but you know, we have some dishes that go all the way back to goodness, you know, twelfth, thirteenth century, and we are still cooking them here in the Rio Grande <laughs> Valley. And I mean, it couldn't be more interesting in terms of talking about yeah. the cuisine of the United States. I mean, we have some old stuff here. It's pretty amazing. That's true. So
1: I, I can't even pronounce the name of the dish, much less figure out how to make it. Capirotada. <laughs> rotata. By the way,
2: where does that name come from? I never thought about that. You know?
5: Okay, so the the, the word, the root word, because uh, you had to be kind of a word nerd to figure out all this stuff. So a capirote, so capirotada, a capirote is a hood. And so in Spain during Lent, uh, the penitents would wear these hoods and march around in the streets and they would be atoning for their sins while uh, maintaining their uh, privacy. So uh, <laughs> don't but, give the priests you know, now any, any
2: ideas, th- Melissa. <laughs> so.
5: Oh, yeah. I hope my my priest isn't listening. I'm not going to cast aspersions. But anyway, no, the the capirotes weren't for the priests. They were for the the folks of the villages and the cities. And and actually, if you go to Guatemala, if you go to Spain, these are still the processions and the pageants that are happening in the streets. People are wearing these big, conical, pointy Mm. hoods. And so that is a capirote. But a capirote can mean many different things. It can refer to uh, a cow that has the he- his head is like one color and the rest of his body is another color. Uh, but it can also refer to the robes of a, a capuchin monk, you know, a, a friar's robes yeah. as well. So it's a little tough to figure out every aspect of where the word capirotada and the the recipe comes from. Uh, I know I'm... I am old, but I am not as old as this recipe. <laughs> so, uh, so you have to kind of sleuth out all these little details that might give you some hints. And so, um, you know, when Davis Rankin calls me, I always get a little bit nervous because he thinks I'm smart. So I have to kind of shore just, up my,
1: just fake my, just uh, fake my
5: knowledge. Yeah. Yeah. Don't yeah, worry. Davis to, thinks he's smart to. too. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, see, I think that's why we're friends, <laughs> you know, <laughs> just birds of a feather. Uh, So, I went into my archive and uh, looked up some information, and this is something that I didn't realize, but a capirotada, another word, or another um, definition of a capirotada is, are you ready? Are you ready, David? I'm ready. This is big. It's a mass grave. What? capirotada can be be a common mass grave. I don't know if I want to eat this
2: now. Good Lord.
5: Well... Well, you never know what you're going to get.
2: If you all need right. enough you of it, really you'll be. get really interesting. What?
5: Yeah, but I, I actually didn't know that until about an hour ago. Uh, I had always assumed that the capirotada had gotten its name from the capirotes that were worn during Lent. Yeah. But it's actually, it might also be a reference to a mass grave. Because, I mean, if you eat a capirotada, like, it's like a lasagna, it's like all this stuff piled in there and, like, all these nuggets that are buried in the middle of it and you don't know what you're getting. So it could come from quite a few different roots. Uh, so but it's it's a great conversation. Uh, you know, you you just don't know exactly what the root of it is. Yeah. But it did at one point in other of my research showed up that it did have meat in it at one point. And you know, uh, as it morphed towards being a Lenten dish, then the meat disappeared and it became more more savory. but it still does have savory bits in it, like uh, like nuts and cheese. Mm-hmm. And the recipe that I have, you can go to my website and find a recipe there that I got from Mrs. Vela and Mrs. Vela, like she knew how to make capirotada, She would um, saute onions in butter. Before she started making her capirotada, wow. and so there's always like this this savory element. Oh, and she used uh, a ton of black pepper, really, in her capirotada as well. And we, yeah, no, we think of it as a dessert, but it has this really kind of yeah. interesting savory. Uh, Definition to it as well. Like you can't get away from it. Like the cheese has to be there. You know, even if people don't put in the black pepper and onions, like the cheese is kind of a thing. So you yeah. can't get away from that savory bit. So anyway, yep. there' a lot to talk about.
2: Uh, Melissa Guerra is uh, well. Her website is Kitchen Wrangler. She go to kitchenwrangler.com dot com, and that'll that'll explain everything. She's a Valley native and a cooking enthusiast, and and um, we're we're putting the capirotave into
1: Context, yes, sir. This is one of those dishes that, well, I think the way I put it to Davis was, you don't. This kind of technique, where you're kind of lumping everything together, you don't really commonly hear that with dessert. Dessert always sounds like there's a there's a, a set goal and objective. Hey, we're going to make this really sweet and attractive pastry-looking thing. This is this sounds like the recipe for a castle roll or something. Well.
5: Yeah, Yeah, and it has kind of this Turkish element to it because a lot of Middle Eastern foods or or foods that are date back to the Romans, they'll incorporate stuff like honey or dried fruits into savory Mm meat-based dishes, you know, like a a chicken with raisins or chicken with almond and raisins, you know, and so you see that more in the Middle East. So there's capirotada, like there is so much to talk about with a capirotada. And you never quite get to the end Of what all the possibilities are uh, But at the end of the day You just need to make it And enjoy it And share it And talk about it I just love this stuff
2: The, the, the We had a couple of young people here From the uh, Birding Center in Edinburgh And I, as I always do Got up in their business the, the guy said He didn't know anything about it, right? Zach never None of us Zach didn't know anything about it And he's from an Hispanic household And the, the woman The young woman said Well, sure did your mother make it? Well, yeah, I'm Hispanic. But I'd run into a lot of Hispanics who didn't, you know, their mom didn't make it. So uh, it's one of these, di- I guess it's a dish that's super representative of us and of Spain and even the Moors who are in Spain. Cause, uh, yeah,
5: because they would have brought the Middle Eastern influence yeah. with them. Uh, so, you know,
2: it's,
5: it just depends on the household. Like, you know, uh, some households make a lot of macaroni and cheese and some households don't. Uh, I don't, uh, but other families have raised you know <laughs> generations on mac and cheese. So you know it just really depends on the household. There's no you know hard and fast yeah. rule on it. Uh, but I I um in terms of talking about like our valley food history, I really cannot think of another dish that says so much.
2: Yes,
1: I agree. What what makes the dish that I'm not even going to try to pronounce? Uh, <laughs> what no. what makes it? It like I, I can't just throw like you know macaroni and cheese and sugar and a throw question. a bunch of stuff together and call it that. Huh. Cap- well, it tata? is a bread
5: pudding, and yeah. with all bread puddings that I have seen in my lifetime, it's an opportunity to use up everything that you have on hand. Yes,
1: yeah, it is.
2: <laughs> so if you have, it's kind of a leftovers bread. leftovers before we we have to sacrifice for Lent getting it out of the kitchen?
5: Not so much leftovers. I would say more stuff that's pantry stable. Like the Rio Grande Valley has a really deep ranching heritage. And so if you have stuff like raisins and nuts and peroncillo that's shelf stable, okay. like those are the things that are going to go into your capirotada. You're going to stew it with cinnamon and uh, anise and cloves because those are shelf stable. So the aspect of having shelf stable ingredients makes total sense. When you're talking about the Rio Grande Valley, I, Davis, I saw that photo that you sent me mm. of the capirotado that you picked up that had bananas in it, uh-huh. and the fact that that had fresh fruit in it and sprinkles, I take <laughs> <a> exception
2: <confession laughs> with sprinkles. <laughs> uh, yeah, I thought the sprinkles were the a bridge fact, too far, but I couldn't, I couldn't yeah. get out of it. Um, the bananas, well,
5: but they are pantry stable, so I would have to say that the sprinkles are probably more. Authentic than that fresh banana.
2: <laughs> I thought the sprinkles just was us because every place you go that has ice cream, they have sprinkles offered. And um,
1: well, do, do uh, you happen to have any on sale or a recipe at your website?
5: Oh no, I I had stopped catering. That was too many Dagum dishes to wash, and I'm lazy. So <laughs> forget that. Uh, but you know, y'all, yeah, y'all can check out. Actually, this week I will be posting a new recipe, so make sure you follow me on Instagram and facebook uh because i've got a new uh, capirotada recipe coming out uh but the one that i have on my website i think uses uh dried cherries Ooh. and dried apricots so it uses like different types of dried fruit but the sh- the shelf stable aspect of the capirotada yeah. is another thing that's kind of a big deal so uh, anyway, I hope y'all aren't thinking about mass graves when you make copies of <laughs> It is really worth your time to make it.
1: Well, right. I wasn't before, but I am now. KitchenWrangler.com. Uh,
2: Melissa Garrett, thank you very much. We appreciate your time and your uh, your anthropology. You're listening to the 956 Drive Home here on 710 KURV.
0: You're listening to an encore presentation of the 956 Drive Home on News Talk 710 KURV and KURV.com. It's called the Radiopotomy app. Find it in your Google Play or Apple App Store. From your friends at News Talk 710 KURV.